Hello, Utah skiers and riders, and welcome to Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast. Thanks to Utah's own Pixie and the Party Grass Boys for opening yet another episode. Last Chair is brought to you by High West Distillery, Utah's first legal distillery since 1870. High West is passionate about crafting delicious and distinctive whiskeys and helping people appreciate whiskey all in the context of our home here in the American West. Join me this winter at one of High West's three must-visit locations in Park City and nearby Wanship. This episode, we welcome two new sponsors. First off, my favorite outdoor store in Park City, Jan's, your go-to shop for year-round outdoor recreation. And welcome to White Pine Touring, Park City's ticket to the outdoors since 1972, providing top-of-the-line equipment and custom-guided tours. Head to pretty much any mountain region of the American West and you'll find a rich 19th century mining history. But in Utah, you can still see it yourself today in the historical structures that dot the mountainside around the state. This week on Last Chair, we'll head back 150 years as we tour around Park City with mountain host Sandy Melville, learning about the silver boom of the late 1800s, how mining evolved, and the role that it played in the advent of skiing in a tour that we call Silver to Slopes. Sandy is a remarkable historian and a fun mountain host. In just a few hours on the mountain, we visited a half dozen sites on a gorgeous bluebird day. If you're coming to Utah this winter, your own self-guided Silver to Slopes tour will be a great adventure for your family or friends. On the podcast today, Sandy will take us on a virtual tour, but you can get details for yourself on the Last Chair blog page at SkiUtah.com. This week's episode is also coming to you live from the High West Distillery in Park City's historic Old Town, and Sandy will also share some insightful history on the High West buildings at the base of the old Crescent Mining Tramway. Now let's head to High West to meet mountain host and mining historian Sandy Melville. Today, the Last Chair podcast from Ski Utah is coming to you live from the High West Distillery in Old Town of Park City. With us today, our guest Sandy Melville, an expert on the mining history of Park City Mountain. And Sandy, welcome to Last Chair. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Tom. It's a pleasure. We had a blast last week. Sandy and I went out and spent the morning skiing at Park City and visiting some of the historical mining structures. And Sandy, it's not unusual for mountains in the West to have a mining history. The one here in Park City, though, is really, really quite rich. And what makes it even better is that so many of the old mining buildings and structures are still there on the mountain. The the mining history here was uh, well over 100 years. And uh, there was an incredible amount of uh, development work done. And we're fortunate to have so many mining structures left on the building, uh, on the mountain rather, intact. Those buildings are uh, standing yet after uh, well over 100 years and uh, it's, uh, it's something that our guests find uh, quite interesting uh, when they're on the mountain to, uh, to view. Before we talk a little bit more detail about the mining heritage of the mountain and also the city here down in Old Town, let's just get a little bit of background on you. Uh, You've been in Park City now for some years, but just give us a little bit of background on how you made your way here to town. (laughs) Sure. Not an unusual story, I guess. I grew up in Wisconsin, in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, actually, and went to the University of Wisconsin uh, undergraduate degree in physics and mathematics 
And I worked for a few years uh, as a, an engineer in industry and then went to graduate school at Purdue and got a, a master's degree in chemical engineering and uh, worked in the actually the oil refining industry for many years, uh, both domestically and internationally. As a, uh, as a young man, when I graduated from college, I could finally afford skiing. And I took up skiing then uh, primarily in the Midwest and originally in some of those... Uh, those big hills. <laughs> those big hills, yeah. And by the way, uh, just a, a caveat, I also am from Wisconsin. I went to the University of Wisconsin. Different pathways completely, and we just happened to meet up here. So, yeah, uh, yeah. so uh, after many years of, uh, of work, spending uh, every vacation moment that I could skiing, uh, my wife and I decided uh, to retire to Park City, and uh, we did that uh, in 2008, moved to Park City, and actually purchased a, uh, an old miner's house and did a restoration on the house in Park City, and that's when I became interested in, really, uh, Park City history. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing history, and in a little bit, we're going to actually learn a little bit more specifically about High West. We're going to do a little tasting coming up in a little, little while. But just to give us a little introduction to the place that we're at right now, these buildings on Park Avenue, just a block off of Park City's Main Street, give us a little history of this place here at High West and all of the beautiful old architecture that we see in Old Town. Yeah, this, this area, uh, Park and Heber Avenue, is uh, a really a, a center of the old town, the old, old town mining industry. Uh, there was a, a, a Crescent Mine Grade tramway that ran from the mountain five miles down the mountain, uh, and, and, it, and it entered Park City just a, a half a block up from where we're sitting or here right now. The buildings that we're sitting in, one of the buildings, the livery building, was actually um, built... Uh, in 1904 by um, Ellsworth Beggs, and he was a, a, a carpenter, a master carpenter actually, who came to Park City in the 1880s and uh, built a number of buildings around town. He purchased this property, developed the livery, and uh, you can the, the front of the, the livery, you can still see uh, the faded paint on uh, the false front of the livery stable and the national garage that was located there. Uh, Mr. Beggs also created the uh, the building uh, that is the uh, the main bar area of High West, uh, that was his home, uh, and it was uh, built to highest standards in 1907. So Mr. Beggs lived here for a number of years. And then further up the street, just a, a, another house up the street, uh, the High West has a, an event center, um, the Nelson Cottage it's called. Well, that building was actually a, uh, an investment property by Lila Nelson. Um, in 1925, and Lila Nelson happened to be the daughter of Colonel Nelson, who had the Nelson Farm, which is the base of Park City Mountain Resort. So it all comes back together again uh, in this section of town. It's an amazing little history. You know, when I look across to all the buildings, one of the things that I feel so good about is that the community has really paid attention to keeping the standards and the look and the feel of Park City as a silver mining town over a century ago. If you look through Old Town, even the new houses that have been built uh, still maintain the look and feel and some of the remnants of those old miners shacks from a hundred and actually almost 150 years ago. That's, uh, that's true. Uh, there are some uh, pretty rigid standards in town. We actually maintain a historic sites inventory of uh, old buildings in town, so the city has a record of every building that uh, is 
on the historic site's inventory. And visitors often wander about Main Street and uh, around Old Town and they'll see homes with ribbons on them. Those are historic ribbons uh, that are renewed every year and the idea of the ribbons is to designate those sites that are historic and they're on the historic sites inventory. In addition to that, on our historic sites inventory, a lot of the mining structures up on the mountain are part of that inventory. And as you ski about the mountain, you'll notice ribbons on uh, mining structures and they are also part of the uh, historic sites mining inventory and we want to uh, make sure that we keep track of them. Let's talk broadly about mining here in Park City. When did it begin and when did things really, really start to boom? Interesting question. Yeah, the uh, beginning uh, was really with Colonel uh, Patrick Connor um, in 1862 during the Civil War. Uh, Salt Lake City was uh, pretty much a crossroads and an important uh, place for communications and travel. And the uh, federal government was concerned about the uh, protecting that, uh, that infrastructure. And they recruited uh, Colonel uh, Connors to uh, come to Utah from California. He had a mining background. He recruited miners from uh, Nevada and California that were part of the gold rush and had a lot of mining experience. So Colonel Connors, when he came to Utah and uh, opened uh, Fort Douglas, uh, those miners uh, went out prospecting. He became sort of the father of the mining industry in uh, Utah. Those miners went up Little Cottonwood Canyon, Altus Ski Resort, uh, the Emma Mine, uh, Big Cottonwood Canyon, uh, the Brighton Ski Re Resort, and uh, Cardiff Mine. Um, so they explored the area pretty extensively and uh, came up uh, that Big Cottonwood Canyon over what is now Guardsman Pass, crossed Bonanza Flats to what is now called the Flagstaff Mine above Deer Valley. And that was really the first producing mine in the Park City area, that was in 1868. So it was pretty early on. Uh, the miners uh, arrived there in the fall of the, of the season, found some attractive looking samples, but they needed to get uh, down the mountain uh, because of their concern about weather. So they took those samples down to Salt Lake, had them assayed, and they proved to be very valuable. And so the uh, Flagstaff mine then developed uh, a little slowly at first, and then uh, 1870s, 80s, things really got rolling in Park City. Eventually we had hundreds of mine claims over what is now Deer Valley, Park City Mountain. There were over 70 producing mines in the area and uh, ultimately over 1,200 miles of shafts and tunnels. So this is all hard rock mining underground, extensive operations. The mining then continued uh, through the 40s and 50s by the 1950s. Um, Park City was in uh, kind of in the decline. The mining industry was not doing so well, and that led to the uh, the idea by the mining company of creating a ski resort, and that was Treasure Mountains, and opened in 1963. But really, we owe everything, all of our skiing history, all of our skiing experience, to the mining history. Uh, this was developed as private land and enabled a lot of flexibility in the development of the mountains. And I, I, I think that everything on our, on our, our ski uh, experience is due to that mining experience that preceded us by 100 years. 
It's fun today as you go to the resorts in Utah, not just here at Park City and Deer Valley, but in Little and Big Cottonwood Canyon. So many of the run names are named after old mining claims and leaders in the mining industry from years ago. You mentioned the Emma Mine and Big Emma at Snowbird was a, is a great run. And if you've been over to Deer Valley, Flagstaff Mountain is a really integral part of, of that ski area. I want to do a shout out for an amazing organization here in the community that's helped to preserve so many of these structures. It would be pretty easy for the resorts to say, let's just get that old pile of wood and metal out of here. But uh, the Friends of Mountain Mining History here in Park City has been instrumental in working together with the resorts like Park City Mountain to keep some of these structures stable and standing. Yeah, the Friends of Ski Mountain Mining History, they're a committee of the Park City Museum, and it's a fantastic organization. The museum itself is a fantastic organization on Main Street. I highly recommend it for visitors who are interested in Park City history. It's a great place to learn about our history. But the Friends of Ski Mountain Mining History has been working so hard to preserve these structures and keep them from falling down. And Vail Resorts has been a great partner with us on the, uh, on the preservation efforts. At Park City Mountain, uh, we have a lot of structures still standing. It's amazing that they're still standing. The Friends of Ski Mountain Mining History has been working to uh, stabilize those structures and, and basically keep them from, from falling down so they can be enjoyed by guests for, for future generations. Sandy, you serve as a mountain host at Park City Mountain. I know COVID has kind of curtailed this year a number of the different programs, but talk a little bit about your uh, Silver to Slopes tour program. We're gonna virtually recreate it here. You can't take it this year with a guide, but hopefully next year you can meet up with Sandy and do that tour. But talk about your role as a mountain host and how you've been able to introduce so many skiers and snowboarders to these wonderful old structures. Yeah, it's been very fun. The resort has a, a, a navigational kind of a tour to show guests the mountain and so that they can explore the mountain and, and learn more about it, especially people who haven't been to the mountain before. Our mountain on, at Park City has all of these great mining structures that people are really interested in. And the interesting thing is that they're available on mainly intermediate level runs. So we can structure our tours to take people around to the mine structures uh, intermediate level skiers and they can see the mining structures uh, for what they are. So it's a great experience for our guests. We've been doing the tours for many years now. We do two tours a day, a morning tour and an afternoon tour usually, uh, pri prior to COVID. They've been quite popular. They're complimentary tours and uh, usually we have uh, kind of an oversubscription and we have to limit the numbers because they're so popular. It's a really unique experience in, in skiing. Uh, I, I can't think of any resort in North America where uh, you can actually ski around to uh, mining structures that date really from the late 1800s. It's a really good point because as you go to different ski areas, these structures do exist or old mines may exist, but at Park City Mountain, there are so many of them and they're in such good condition. For sure at Deer Valley, you're going to run across some and there's some I know right under the Ruby Lift that uh, is, is a really nice attraction. When you're over in the Cottonwood Canyons, you're gonna run across some old mine structures, but, but here it's really quite well organized. Yeah, that's, uh, that's true. It's interesting. I think that the mining company when they got into the ski business uh, here at Park City, they really were thinking, well, we'll get into the ski business to kind of supplement our balance sheet for a while, but we'll eventually come back to mining. So the mine structures were basically, uh, they just walked away and left them. Of course, 
silver mining never came back and the mine structures are still there uh, as they were walked away from uh, in the 50s. Now at Deer Valley there's a, there are a couple nice structures. There's the uh, little Bell Orbion on the Bandana Ski Run and there's a Daily West head frame that's above the montage. Um, those are interesting structures themselves but we seem to have more of them left on the Park City Mountain. Yeah, it's uh, an interesting tour. We're going to have Sandy do a virtual run-through of the tour. And by the way, you can go to SkiUtah.com and go to the Last Chair blog page, and you can get a little bit more detail on how you could actually spend two or three hours at Park City Mountain and see some of these structures. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Sandy Melville to talk more of mountain mining history coming to you live today from High West Distillery in Park City, Utah. I love history, and Sandy was the ideal guide as we skied around the mountain. We'll be back to him in just a minute, but right now I want to tell you about a favorite place of mine in Park City. Since I moved to Utah in 1988, Jansen Park City has been my go-to for outdoor recreation gear. And what has always impressed me about Jans was the staff knowledge and the collection of notable outdoor brands. If you're buying a pair of skis this year, you're making an investment in your on-mountain enjoyment. Jan's Try It Before You Buy It Ski Test Program gives you a chance to experience skis on snow before actually buying. And when it's time for a tune, Renstall is the longtime leader in Park City with experienced World Cup technicians offering everything from a simple wax and sharpen up to a full-on racing tune. Why tune your skis? Well, it just makes for a better experience on the mountain. An oft-forgotten element of your ski experience is boot fitting. The expert boot fitters at Jans will provide a customized fit that will improve your comfort and performance out in the snow. And I can tell you, it does make a difference. If you're coming to town and don't have your own gear, you can find it all at Jans from skis to snowboards to helmets and even winter clothing. And finally, if you're looking to take a break for a day from the slopes, check out Jan's world-renowned fly fishing guide service. You're just minutes away from Blue Ribbon Fisheries. It's a nice break on a spring ski trip to Utah. Stop into Jan's Park City stores or check out jans.com in advance. Now let's get back to our historic mining mountain tour with Sandy Melville. And we're back now with Sandy Melville. We are talking Silver to Slopes today. Sandy, a mountain host at Park City Mountain and an expert on all of the many historic mining structures on the mountain. And Sandy, we had a great little personal tour last week to get an outline of what we would talk about here today. And the first stop that we made was at the base of the Bonanza Lift. And this was actually an important one for me because I worked for the U.S. ski team for over 30 years, and for a couple of years, that actually was our base. But let's go back many, many years ago to talk about all of the action that was right there at the base of what is now the Bonanza Lift. The Silver King Coalition is like the heart of mining history in, uh, on the Park City Mountain. It is just an amazing, uh, amazing area there. Located at the base of the Bonanza Lift, as, as you indicated, it consisted uh, in the day of, uh, well, let me back up just a second. In, in 1882, the Silver King Coalition Mine was formed. It was a combination of five different mines in the area. And it was formed by uh, some investors, uh, David uh, Keith and Thomas Kearns were the, probably the most notable. 
But they formed the, uh, the uh, company. It was quite a, a uh, prosperous uh, mining endeavor. Moving forward then into the eight, late, later 1890s, um, they built uh, then uh, hoisting works, uh, which still exists today. So there's a, a big hoisting works right at the base of the Bonanza lift. Down Woodside Gulch, there's an enormous mill facility that a lot of skiers ski by regularly and don't even notice. It's down the gulch from the base of Bonanza Lift. And then in combination with that, there's an aerial tramway system. So this was state-of-the-art facilities in 1900. When you talk about a hoist facility, the ore was mined deep in the earth, and then they would use this to raise it up to the surface? Yeah, that's correct. The hoisting works uh, is, is still intact there inside that structure. It's an amazing uh, old hoisting works, but the miners would go down in the cage in the, uh, on the hoist, so they would descend uh, about 1,300 feet in this case to uh, an, a working area, and uh, then they would uh, branch out from there into various uh, working areas from that base. They would uh, blast, they would drill and blast, and then muck, we called it muck. After blasting, there'd be a lot of loose material that would be loaded into um, uh, tram cars, and it would be trammed over to the base of that hoist, the same hoist that the miners went down in. And they used animals, incidentally, to uh, haul those tram cars, so there were animals underground working. Uh, tram cars then were hoisted to the surface 1,300 feet, and they were conveyed then on a covered uh, tramway over to the uh, top of the, the mill facility. Now the covered tramway has long been removed with the, uh, with the development of the resort, but uh, there are some uh, photos that we use on our tour that show the layout of, of the property at the time. The tram cars then went to the top of the mill and the name of the game with the mill was to separate the uh, waste rock from the ore concentrates. These, uh, the miners were not, uh, were not dumb. They did not want to ship uh, any more material than they needed to. So the concentrates then uh, were produced in the mill. And basically the mill was a series of grinding, crushing jigs and tables and uh, to separate the valuable ore from the waste rock. At the bottom of the mill, as it proceeded down by gravity, the ore was essentially, you could think of it almost like sand. It was a very fine grade material. And I should mention at this point that another little secret that I share only with guests is that our miners really never saw silver. Uh, we mined a material called galena, which was a lead sulfide. Uh, we also uh, mined a zinc sulfide, a sphalerite it's called, but they never saw silver. The silver was actually an impurity in the, uh, in the galena that didn't appear until it went through the fine metals uh, section of a smelter, and the smelters were located in Salt Lake. So our miners didn't see silver, but they knew very well what they were looking for. So this fine powder then at the base of the mill went by a conveyor up to a sampler building. Now this is really an interesting building. It no longer remains except for a beautiful stone foundation that you can still see on the hillside. The sampler building was about 95 feet tall, so it was a big building. The ore went through the sampler and it was actually basically assayed. There was always a conflict between the mining company and the smelting company in terms of, well, I shipped you ore of this quality and the smelting company would say, well, I received ore of this quality. 
So they were able to do an online assay in 1900 that was nearly 100% accurate. <laughs> After it went through that sampling building, the ore then went into the uh, aerial tramway system. And via buckets, uh, similar to our chairlift technology today, I think our chairlift technology borrowed uh, that idea. And the ore buckets then descended uh, 1,000 feet down the mountain uh, on the aerial tramway, which was about 7,000 feet long, to an uh, unloading station, which was right across the street from the High West uh, distillery here. And it was loaded into uh, ore cars and uh, shipped then down to Salt Lake for smelting. So the whole process was amazingly complex, uh, quite interesting, and very sophisticated. It's state of the art for the day, and people came from uh, around the country to see how mining was done here in Park City. The listeners, you can't see this, but Sandy has in front of himself right now two rocks. And these two rocks look relatively similar to the naked eye. But as I, I pick them up, one of them is appreciably heavier. It, so tell me the difference between the two, and is, is the, silver, the silver ore is really that noticeable in the weight? Well, it's not really the silver ore that's noticeable in the weight, it's the lead. So the, the galena is the lead sulfide, and the other rock is uh, quartzite. And the quartzite is basically the host rock for the, uh, the galena underground, and so that what the miners tried to do then was separate that, that waste rock from the galena. Uh, the galena, when we look at it here, it has some shiny silver, silvery-looking surfaces on it. That's really not silver. You can't see the silver in there. That's lead. But it's actually a chunk of lead. And think of the silver in there as being almost an impurity in the molecular structure of the lead sulfide. And that silver then doesn't come out until the fine metal section of the smelters. But a very valuable impurity. Very valuable impurity, indeed. Well, it's interesting to note that, you know, we call ourselves a silver mine, a silver mining camp here. It's because, you know, we mined the lead, the zinc, a little copper, a little gold, and silver. Of all those uh, tons of material that was mined, when you assay it out, pay for it, uh, the silver was approximately half of the value. So we mined a lot more lead, a lot more zinc in terms of weight, but the silver had more value. So uh, about half was silver, and so we call ourselves a silver camp, but we could be a lead camp as well. It's just not as glamorous. No, definitely not. <laughs> Sandy, about how many miners were at, at its peak at Silver King Coalition, how many miners were working there? I, uh, I'm guessing around three to 400 in various capacities, underground, in the mill, in the, uh, well, the aerial tramway actually didn't really require that many people operating, but there were a lot of, uh, how do you call it, back of house people as well, machinists, uh, carpenters, you know, uh, muckers, uh, there, were, there were lots of other people working as well. So um, there was a, a, quite a large staff. One last little piece of history, the Mid-Mountain Lodge, where many skiers and snowboarders have dined on the mountain for many years, it's in a wonderful location up the hill a little bit, but it was actually a part of the Silver King camp, essentially, many years ago and was moved up the hill. Yeah, that's, that's true. The, uh, the owners of the Silver King wanted to have, they, they wanted to treat their workers well, and it was a great uh, boarding house. And that was our, what our, we now call our Mid-Mountain Lodge. But it was the, uh, the boarding house for the miners. Uh, it was a cafeteria, actually, on the lower level. And, uh, 
and mine offices. The upper level of that beautiful old building were sleeping quarters for uh, executives. Frequently they'd be working late in the day. It was very difficult to get down the mountain in those winter months so they might stay up there overnight. But that beautiful building then served as a cafeteria for the miners in the day and uh, it's still serving our skiers as a fine eating establishment today. Before we leave the Silver King mine, Sandy, can you give listeners some quick instructions on how you get up there? It's really pretty simple. Yeah, it is uh, very simple uh, from our, our base area. Uh, just take the payday lift. Um, and when you uh, exit the payday lift, go to the right on uh, a run called Bonanza Access. And it will take you uh, right down to the base of the Bonanza lift. And you'll see the, uh, the enormous old hoisting works there and if you look carefully to your left you'll see the mill facility and there's also some descriptive plaques located outside of the uh, of the hoisting works that describe what went on there uh, in lieu of our, doing our guided tours um, the the plaques serve our guests well to uh, better understand the mining activities that were done on the mountain and a quick bit of u.s ski team history in about the 1974-75 period those buildings actually were the home of and the training center for the U.S. Alpine ski team. Kind of short-lived, but it was an interesting little uh, enhancement on the mountain there for a couple of years. So we are now going to head up to the California Comstock mine. And first of all, put us on the mountain. How do we get up to that mine site? And let's talk a little bit about that amazing structure that still stands today. There's several ways you can uh, access the uh, California Comstock. My favorite route is to uh, take that Bonanza lift up from the uh, base of the Silver King, and at the top of Bonanza, then exit uh, underneath the, the chair, down home run, take the first turn to the right on Mid-Mountain Meadows, and you'll ski right by that Mid-Mountain Lodge down to the, the Pioneer lift. Ride the Pioneer lift up, and then when you exit Pioneer, take uh, the Keystone run down to the California Comstock. And the California Comstock is located in uh, Thanes Canyon, sort of at the bottom of the, uh, the Keystone Run. Just a little recommendation. I've been living here for over 30 years, and I don't think I'd skied back in that area for quite a few, but our kids used to go back there all the time. And I think everybody gets infatuated by the high-speed six-packs around the mountain, but this Pioneer Lift takes you to a wonderful place on the mountain. and place I hadn't been in quite a few years and nobody really goes there. The runs underneath the Pioneer Lift are underutilized because of that and they're great ski runs. There's some great conditions there. So the mine itself, the California Comstock, actually a combination of different claims. Tell us a little bit about that and the structures that remain today. The structure that remains there today is actually the mill structure and it's a beautiful old wooden structure that is probably the most photographed structure on the mountain because it's, it's set in such a great location right in the bottom of the canyon. But it was actually, there were two mines there, the California and the Comstock. Uh, California and Comstock uh, were close together and uh, it was an interesting uh, merger. It was a result of something called the Law of Apex. Um, the Law of Apex in Utah, as it was a federal law I believe, but uh, it resulted in an enormous amount of litigation. It was really the greatest make-work project for attorneys in the era. Uh, but what it said is if a claim, if you had a claim and uh, you had ore that apexed up on your property, uh, simplistically this is, you could follow it into your neighbor's claim. 
And of course, that resulted in endless arguments about who owned what. And the California and the Comstock then got into a, a quite an extensive legal battle over the, uh, the law of apex. And they finally just decided, rather than duking it out, in court to settle. And they merged and formed one company, the California Comstock. Um, and then they um, built this, uh, this mill facility, which we see today. The mill was uh, really a smaller mill. It was mainly uh, a crushing operation, just to separate, again, the, the ore uh, from the uh, waste rock. And there are some enormous waste rock piles uh, surrounding the property that are best visible, actually, in the summertime when you're hiking up there. Uh, but you can see the piles covered with snow in the wintertime. The, uh, California Comstock then was about 150 ton per day mill. And to give you contrast, the Silver King Coalition mill was about 450 tons per day. So considerably smaller mill. Uh, it was uh, a wooden structure. It's just a, a beautiful old structure and it was sadly in need of stabilization. It was, had been enjoyed on the mountain for many, many years. Uh, snow loads had taken a tremendous toll on the structure it was in danger of collapse. And uh, the Friends of Ski Mountain Mining History in collaboration with Vale Resorts then worked for several years to uh, stabilize uh, the structure and actually rebuilt a portion of the, the structure. They did a magnificent job. Um, some of the stonework there is just beautiful. Uh, when they were doing the structure, um, it was interesting to note that uh, there was a pile of debris in the bottom of the old mill and we had a crane out there that lifted um, out of the, the bottom of the mill an, an antique uh, stone crusher um, that we didn't know existed and so that stone crusher was pulled out and it's sitting actually behind that mill uh, to this day um, not visible in the wintertime but in the summertime if you're hiking up there or biking along the power line trail you can uh, observe the old uh, antique rock crusher. Sandy, can you give us any tips on the prime photo location coming down the run before you see the mine? Yeah, what, what I think is the best shot of the, uh, of the old structure is as you're coming down the Keystone uh, run on uh, Skier's Left, as you intersect Thanes Canyon, stop there because you get this great view of the old structure and it's framed by the mountainside behind it. And in the wintertime with the, the snow, it is just gorgeous and that's a, a great way to photograph uh, the structure. And there is also uh, uh, another one of our plaques in front of the structure. If you need more information when you're skiing out there, you can uh, stop by the plaque and uh, read up about what went on there. That's the California Comstock Mine, a beautiful, beautiful site to get there up the Pioneer Lift, down the Keystone Run, and have your cameras ready. We'll be back in just a moment, taking a short break, and we'll talk more about the Thanes Lift just a little bit further down the canyon. But first, time to take a break for a tasting here at High West. We'll be right back on this episode of Last Chair. One of the beauties of doing a podcast that has High West as a sponsor is that you get to make visits to the distillery, and we are in the distiller's room right now at High West's Park Avenue location in Park City, and joining uh, Sandy and I is Steve Walton, the Director of Beverage for High West, and Steve, thank you for joining us on Last Chair and for your support of the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm uh, super excited to be here. Yeah. So 
Before we get into the tasting, and we're going to taste a uh, burai, which is something that's available only in Utah. So for all of you visitors, uh, this is one more reason to come to Utah to get this uh, whiskey that we're going to be tasting. Tell us a little bit about High West and the place that we're in here today. Yeah, there's a lot of history kind of in these buildings here. So the, the, the building uh, t to, to my left is actually the, our, our livery. We call it the, the livery building. And it was actually a, um, a, a horse livery uh, back in the, uh, the mining days uh, and actually uh, used to um, you know, house the horses that, that, that took the, you know, some of the equipment up and down the hill. Uh, and when the place was being actually put together um, and they were building the, or taking apart the, um, the building, they actually found a horseshoe that's actually uh, in the rubble. And it's actually above one of our doors, just over by the front there. And then the saloon building next door was one of the first uh, two-story buildings in Park City. And we were fortunate enough to buy both of them and actually join them together with this beautiful still uh, that's right in front of us right now. You know? Sandy, I want to go over to you. And we've been talking mining here in the podcast and some of the history of Park City Mountain, Silver to Slopes. This is right at the, the location of High West today is right at the base of the Silver King Tramway that we've talked a little bit about. Can you give us a little bit more detail on some of the towers that we see right outside the building? The towers that exist outside of the building, people frequently, guests frequently confuse them with uh, old lift towers. But they're actually uh, the aerial tramway towers from the uh, Silver King Coalition mine. So it was a method uh, to haul the uh, ore concentrates from the mine to the, uh, to the unloading station, which was located right here, right across the street from this facility near the base of the town lift. You were telling me last week about an incident that occurred here, and I think there's maybe still some remnants outside. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's an amazing story, actually. The aerial tramway uh, was built in uh, 1901. So it was a state-of-the-art facility in 1901. And uh, it was loaded with ore buckets, uh, approximately 60 ore buckets on the line. And each bucket consisted of, uh, of uh, about 800 pounds of ore. So you can imagine the tremendous weight on that aerial tramway system. Well, in 1907, one of the cables broke towards the top of the mountain that uh, was a traction cable for the aerial tramway system. And all of those buckets came tumbling down the mountain. So you can imagine the tremendous roar of uh, 60 ore buckets at 800 pounds each crashing down the mountain and they were cascading down on top of a residential district, which is basically where the High West is located. Uh, miraculously, no one was hurt. Uh, an ore bin was, uh, a coal bin rather, was uh, destroyed. There was a considerable amount of uh, concentrates piled up along the, the street. Mine company cleaned it up uh, pretty quickly. To this day, tower number two, which is just above the High West uh, distillery here, the old aerial tramway tower, has a distorted uh, metal brace on it. The four by four angle iron is pretty distorted. That was a result of those buckets crashing down. So very few people in town know that story. Very few guests know it, but when you travel up the town lift and you look at that tower number two, you'll see a distorted angle brace and that's from the 1907 crash of the buckets. 
Well, Park City's Old Town is quite a sight. If you haven't visited Park City before, make it a point to get downtown and look at some of the old miners' buildings and visit High West, uh, another great uh, set of historical buildings here. We're here to drink whiskey, though, and Steve, you are an expert and a connoisseur. First of all, tell us a little bit about the process that goes into making whiskey right here at High West Distillery. Yeah, so we have two locations, uh, but we're in our, our Park City location here on uh, old, in Old Town, Park City. And we, uh, we make one small batch per day. And basically what you're looking at is you get some grain, uh, rye or corn. Uh, we make it into a beer and then we basically boil it and then the, uh, what evaporates off of that becomes, becomes whiskey, you know, and then in the simple sense of it. If you look at the equipment in, in front of us right now, it's a little bit more, um, there's a little bit more to it than, than that, but in its basic form, you're just turning grain into beer, boiling the beer, turning it into, uh, into a spirit, uh, and then whiskey actually gets aged in a barrel uh, for a, 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 a given period of time. So you've chosen for our tasting today the, the High West Boo Ride. Tell us a little bit about that, why it's unique, and maybe anything that is innovative about the distilling process. So what makes Boorai great, uh, and it's, it's really in the name, um, so we call it Boorai because it's a blend of bourbon and rye whiskey. So, it's, so you get a little bit of both in that. So you get the corn and the sweetness of the bourbon, but you get the spiciness of the rye that comes through. So Boorai is actually a really cool name, um, and if you're looking at the label, we have what's called a jackalope on the, on the, on the label, and, uh, which is a cross between a jackrabbit and an antelope. So we've, we use kind of boo rye, uh, and then so kind of jackalope is, is kind of the, the, the animal uh, for this particular product because it's also a cross between uh, two different um, species. You know. And the, the jackalope is native to Utah, right? Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> From a historical perspective, you probably know I, more I've than I've seen me. many of them out there, yes. <laughs> we have in front of us uh, a nice little pour of boo rye. Uh, what should we expect when we, we taste this next? So when you're actually going to taste a, a whiskey, uh, when we're going to taste this one neat, is what we do is we generally tip the glass over to, us, to the side and we're going to roll it uh, around and just coat the edge of the glass in that whiskey. Uh, what a lot of people generally tend to do when they taste whiskey is they give it a swirl like, like wine. Uh, we don't actually want to do that. We just want to just basically coat the edge of that glass and then that actually enables us to, to get the, the, bring the flavors through a little bit more. So once you've got that kind of the glass kind of coated and if you hold it up you can look and like wine you'll, you'll, you'll get kind of the legs but uh, you'll see a slow concentration of the, of the whiskey coming down the sides. But then once we've got our, our glass coated, uh, we kind of jump in and when we taste whiskey, we do nose, we do taste, and we do a finish. You know? So we jump in there and we, get, uh, we jump in on our nose. But when we're smelling whiskey, we actually keep our mouth open. So what it actually does is that it allows the, the um, once with the mouth open, you don't get that burn sensation in the back of the nose. You get that free flowing, uh, the air coming through. So we kind of jump in there and then, you know, everybody has different um, you know, flavor profiles. Everyone has different palates. So everybody gets something different, but on the nose with the corn being naturally a sweet grain, uh, I get a lot of vanilla. Um, there's a slight hint of like a, a, a pineapple juice, uh, so a light tropical note coming through. And one of the fun things for me on this one on the nose is I, I get like a, a, a butterfinger, you know, the, the candy that, that, that comes in there. 
But everybody smells and everybody tastes different. So it's, you know, when you see or hear like a professional tasting something, like I get aniseed or I get all these different things, it's very personal to you what you kind of pull out of these. So we go into the nose and it doesn't burn. It's, it's very pleasant. And yeah, yeah, so there's vanilla, pineapple, tropical fruit notes. And then once you've kind of, you've got the nose, we're gonna take a small sip to get us started. And we coat that around the inside of the mouth just to actually allow our palate to, to kind of cleanse and become familiar with the product. And then when you go in with your second sip, you generally start pulling out uh, different flavors and you'll start seeing what's coming through. So on the, on the second taste, and you get that spicy quality coming through from the rye. So one thing to think about from when it comes to you know, bourbon and rye, bourbon is made of corn, and obviously rye whiskey is made of rye. Rye is naturally spicy, where corn is naturally sweet. So you get a little sweet, you get a little spice, um, but I also get like a black pepper, like those kind of spices, like baking spices coming through. Um, there's some kind of like ripe plum, and uh, in a hint on the very end, like a little dried peach. You know, there's that tropical note coming through towards the end. But everyone's got to pick up, you know, kind of different flavors through. But there's always that predominant spice flavor that you're going to get with a rye. This really, really brings this out. So you get that sweetness on the beginning of the palate, and you get that really nice spicy note at the end. And then when we're talking whiskey, we kind of always talk about the finish. So this one has a kind of a medium to light finish. So it doesn't stick around for too long on the back of the palate. Uh, you know, you're getting those flavors, it, it's, it's right there in the mouth and then it kind of just slowly kind of, you know, disappears and it's not, you know, overpowering that palate. And that light spice is definitely familiar on that finish. Uh, you get a little bit of, dark, uh, sorry, dried fruit and then I get kind of a, kind of a dark chocolatey finish at the end there that you would get. Uh, so you're getting the sweet, you're getting the spice across the board. You get it on the nose, you get it on the taste and you get it on the finish. You know? But for me, this is a really awesome product. And like you said earlier, um, it's a Utah only release. So we do sometimes get a little selfish, you know, at High West and we want, you know, to have something that not everybody can get nationally. So, you know, people visit the property and they come in and they're, you know, they're skiing or they're mountain biking during the summertime and they come up to the bar or sit at a table for dinner and they're like, what, yeah, what can I get here in, in Utah or Park City that, that I can't get anywhere else? And kind of Burai is that um, one of our limited releases. Um, it releases in February every year. And we make about 800 nine-liter cases, and it's one of those products that when it's gone, it's gone. And then we make it again the following year, and then we re-release it in February. Um, so you know those limited special releases uh, really makes it a, a, a great reason to come visit the the distillery here in Park City. Well, Steve, this is really quite amazing, Sandy. I don't think that the miners had anything quite like this back a century ago, did they? I'm quite certain they didn't have anything of this quality. Oh, this is really nice. Steve, for, uh, for those uh, just becoming familiar with the High West line, in addition to Burai, which is available only here in Utah, what are some of the other High West standards that you would recommend? Yeah, so we have American Prairie and Double Rye, which we call like uh, our core two products. Uh, and they're kind of uh, nationally distributed, uh, available obviously across the United States and, and worldwide now with the, with the growing the growth of the brand. But uh, the Double Rye and the American Prairie are great kind of cocktail whiskies. You know, you can make a great Old Fashioned, uh, great Manhattan, those classic whiskey cocktails because they really stand up well on their own. 
but they go really great in a cocktail. So our old fashioned here at Park City, we actually utilize the American Prairie and the double rye. So kind of like the boo rye, but we put it in the glass. We're making the old fashioned. So you get the sweet of the American Prairie and you get that spice of the double rye. So you know, the old fashioned is actually the most popular selling cocktail we have on our menu. And we sell just shy of 50,000 of those a year. Wow. That's a, that's a lot of old fashions. Uh, wh one last question while we have you, Steve. I'm a big fan of campfire. How do you get that smoke in there? So we actually purchased the smoke from a distillery in Scotland. We have an NDA with them, and, and only our master distiller, Brendan Coyle, actually knows where it's sourced from. It's only a small percentage of the blend, but that's what brings the campfire uh, it's, it's smoky quality because it, it literally is a, a, um, a scotch from, uh, a, that's been brought over from Scotland. You know? It's really quite amazing. It is a really popular choice and people love it. And that's one of the great things about the, our line of products is we have the American Prairie for our bourbon lovers. We have the double rye for our rye lovers. And then we have the campfire for our scotch lovers. And then we just introduced a couple of years ago uh, High Country Single Malt which is actually an American style uh, single malt. So you're using the same processes uh, that you would be making a scotch in Scotland, but obviously you're making it in the United States, so it can't actually be called scotch. So there's a kind of a new classification of kind of whiskey that's out there, which is a, a American uh, single malt. Yeah. Well, Steve, we appreciate you coming in and uh, talking to us about Burai here at High West. Uh, a toast to you, and thanks Thank you very much for thanks being here. Thanks for having here. me. Cheers. That is mighty fine. Steve Walton, the beverage director here at High West Distillery in Park City, Utah. And we are back to last chair, and we still have a little bit of burai in the glass. I think I'm going to hold off till we're finished with the podcast. So what did you think, Sandy? Oh, the burai is, is great. Um, I really did enjoy it, and I haven't finished mine yet either. I'm going <laughs> to hold off for a little bit longer. But well, Steve, Steve left a whole bottle, and I'm kind of looking around, and I think we could probably pour a little bit more, but uh, what a tasty treat here at High West. It was absolutely fantastic. Did you learn something? I learned a whole lot about uh, whiskey. Actually, as a chemical engineer, I uh, enjoy distillation, but what I primarily distilled was oil, so... I have a new appreciation for distilling alcohol. <laughs> well, we had, a year ago, we had David Perkins, who was the original visionary behind High West on the program. And he, too, is a chemical engineer, and he was just taking a distillery tour one day, and he was looking around and he said, this is exactly what I do, but just with different materials. It's the same principles. I'm looking at the still here thinking, I could operate that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's much better use of the process, though. So uh, the High West Burai was really good. And thank you to Steve Walton for that. Let's get back now to our history. This has been a fascinating tour, Sandy, taking us around the mountain and reliving some of the mining times from 100 to 150 years ago. For sure, one of the most impressive structures, though, on the mountain is the old Thanes Lift. And I know a lot of work has gone in very recently to stabilizing and shoring up that structure. Tell us a little bit about where this is and what role it played in Park City's mining history. Yeah, the Thanes, uh, the Thanes shaft is just across the canyon from the California Comstock. And it's just below the Keystone Run. And there's actually a Keystone Mine up there, too. So the, the Thanes shaft is uh, very visible from the uh, Thanes lift. Um, when you're riding up the old Thanes lift, if you uh, look to your right, you can see the hoisting works for the Thanes shaft. It has a really interesting story though. The, the Thanes shaft was actually uh, a later development. It was uh, driven in the 1930s uh, by the uh, 
the mining company uh, primarily for access to the tunnel systems underground. Uh, there was no, there was really wasn't an expectation of hitting any uh, valuable ore, and they and then they really didn't. But it, it did. Uh, it was driven in the 1930s. The enormous waste rock pile that you'll see as you go down Thames Canyon um, was from driving the shaft primarily, um, and the shaft served its purpose for many years. It went down about uh, 1,700 feet, so it's pretty deep shaft. But fast forward to. Uh, our skiing history, and that's when mining and skiing really become tied together. Because in the early days of the resort, um, the resort, when it opened, the mine company opened the resort with the longest gondola in North America. It was a, a 22 minute ride from the base of the mountain to the top, and it was quite popular and had some pretty long <laughs> lift lines. In 1964, the resort opened up the Thanes lift, which was kind of backcountry in the day. It was way out in the, in, the, uh, in the back edge of the resort. They opened up the Thanes lift, but they were having trouble getting skiers out to the Thanes lift. And uh, so they're looking for a solution to that, and miners being miners, and we were still mining at the time, by the way, um, they had a creative solution. They said, well, shoot, we go in and out of there all the time. We can just retrofit some, some mine cars and uh, take the skiers out there through what is known as the Spiro Tunnel. The Spiro Tunnel, the portal to the Spiro Tunnel is located over by our Silver Star Base area. And it was a, uh, about a three mile long exploration and drain tunnel um, driven by uh, the Silver King Consolidated Mining Company. Uh, Solon Spiro was the, uh, the manager. It was driven out under the mountain. It actually it goes right underneath the California Comstock mine. So the miners used that tunnel for access to the tunnel systems underground. With the skier need, they decided to retrofit some ore cars and just pull skiers from the Silver Star base area in ore cars underground to the base of that Thane's uh, hoist. They would load them in the cage, the skiers they'd load in the cage at the base of the the Thane's shaft then, and pull them that 1,700 feet to the surface where uh, they'd uh, come out of the, the shaft onto the snow, right uh, where uh, we enjoyed uh, stopping on our, on our ski tour um, last week. Miners described being in an open cage as being the feeling like being buried alive. Now you can imagine it's not very well lit. It's an open cage. There's this damp, earthy smell as you're proceeding along up the, uh, or up or down the, uh, the shaft. So it really is a kind of a creepy feeling and it wasn't, the whole thing wasn't that enormously popular with our, with our skiing guests. Uh, the ride out was rather long and the uh, ride up the hoist was scary. And uh, when they arrived to the surface, many times they were uh, sort of damp and dirty. And uh, of course, when they would hit the slopes in their uh, woolen ski wear of the era, it would instantly freeze. So it was kind of an uncomfortable experience as well. Uh, but they, would, they did use it, and they uh, proceeded then to the Thanes lift, where uh, they could have access to that great skiing in the Thanes area. I actually had on my tours, every year I will have a guest who has ridden the skier, we called it the skier subway, the Thanes uh, skier subway. And um, 
Some people say, well, it wasn't that bad, and other people say, I would only do it once. It scared the daylights out of me. So there was a mixed reaction to it. The resort uh, only operated it for about four years, and then they discontinued it as being probably a, a risky operation that wasn't uh, serving its purpose as well as it could. It's an amazing piece of history, and I was never in the skier subway. I did go down in the old Ontario mine, which is on the mine road going up to Silver Lake at Deer Valley. That was actually open for tours in the 90s. That was interesting to go down and experience that. But I will, um, uh, I'll just hearing these stories about the skier subway is quite remarkable. You can go to our blog page for the Last Chair podcast at skiutah.com, and we will have some pictures posted, and you can see some of the pictures of skiers going in the skier's subway three miles underground and then what 1700 feet up to the base of the thanes lift an amazing journey and i'll add for um for anyone visiting park city that is interested in the skier subway if they visit the museum on main street in the in the lower level of the museum there's an excellent display on the skier subway and you could actually sit in one of the uh, old mine rail cars and get a feeling for what that must have been like to uh, access the skier subway. Yeah, that's a really good suggestion. The Park City Museum right on Main Street, an amazing resource to kind of take you back in time. Also head on over to the Silver Star base where you can get an idea of where that tunnel began and imagine in your mind it going up Thanes Canyon. The uh, What's the period of operation for that mine over in Thanes Canyon? When did that begin and when did it finally terminate as a mine? Well, the uh, that mine, uh, the shaft uh, was uh, driven in the, in the mid-1930s, and it continued to be used uh, well into the, uh, into, the, into the 50s. So it was an active site for many years. Yeah, there's just so much history. And Sandy, it's been wonderful for you to share this. I hope that next season, if you're making your vacation plans to come to Utah next year, check out to see if uh, Sandy's Silver to Slopes tour is running. Otherwise, they'll be able to find you up on the mountain somewhere to ask you questions wherever you might be on your day. (laughs) I'm in a, a red coat. Red pants with a big eye on my back. You can't miss me. <laughs> no, and, and, he's, and, it, and it is a truly a unique experience. Just one closing question before we get into some fun stuff with fresh tracks. You know, what, what is, I'm an historian myself, and I know what, what fuels my passions for it, but what are the things that fuel your passion for mountain mining history? Well, I think that, uh, first of all, as, a, as an engineer, I became fascinated with the technical aspects of the, of the mines. To me, it was, it was so amazing that people could uh, accomplish all of this with relatively primitive tools and methods, but they were very, very smart people. I'm continually impressed with how smart the people were who did uh, worked in the mines and did the, the, the mining uh, development here. So that's one uh, area of interest to me. And the other is that I, I really think that by understanding uh, that is sort of a philosophical thing, but understanding that past, you can really understand the present. And uh, I go about the mountain and I see things uh, that uh, raise a question in my mind and I go look at it and research it a little bit and then I understand how that became what it is. So uh, it's, it's very important to me uh, personally and I think uh, it's a, a great amenity on the mountain. History is the roadmap to the future. I agree. <laughs> Okay, Sandy, we're going to go to Fresh Tracks now, a series of questions that I used to tell my guests. These are really simple questions. And then the guests would come back and say, that really wasn't so simple. But uh, how about this one to kick it off? Do you have a favorite story 
from back in the mining era, something maybe we haven't touched on yet today, a favorite mining story. Oh, there are so many, so many great mining stories. Uh, one, that, one that might interest uh, the listeners because it's sort of a, I think skiers can maybe relate to this story. Um, in, uh, yeah, let's see, it was in 1916 in the Silver King Consolidated Mine. Well, the Silver King Consolidated Mine was located on our Claim Jumper ski run. Uh, it's a, the only thing that's left there now is a beautiful old ore bin that you can ski as you ski, as you head down Claim Jumper. There was a mine there, it was in December, a uh, miner working underground, got caught in a cave-in, broke his leg badly, badly. And unfortunately, it was blizzard conditions. There was no way for the dock to, to get there. But miners being miners figured out a way. They loaded the dock. The doctor's name was Dr. Snow, by the way. Of they course. Loaded, of course. They loaded Dr. Snow in an ore bucket. And uh, there was an aerial tramway servicing the uh, Silver King Consolidated Mine, the King Khan. And they loaded him in an ore bucket and transported him to the site of the mine. He uh, treated the uh, miner's leg. And then <laughs> they loaded the miner, uh, the, the newspaper at the time recorded it as they, they loaded him in an ore car in a comfortable couch and put him on an ore car uh, uh, down the mountain, Dr. Snow went in another ore car, and they took him down to the, uh, to the miners' hospital for further treatment. But as a skier, it was a howling blizzard. You can imagine how modern ski uh, lifts rock in the wind. Can you imagine being strapped in an ore car <laughs> with a broken leg? <laughs> in the middle of winter. Um, on a couch. On a couch, yeah. Amazing, <laughs> love that story. Yeah. Um, how about this, an unusual, the most unusual question that a guest has asked you about mining history? Oh, about, uh, as a um, guest services, we get, I mean, that's our business, getting questions. So we get tons of fun questions from guests. And it's, it's, that's one of the, actually the funnest parts about the job is answering guest questions. One interesting question that I've had a number of times is, well, how does the resort make the moguls? And uh, that's a question that I, I guess people just don't understand how they get formed, but it's a, it's a good question, but it's how do we question. make the moguls? <laughs> you know, I used, to, I used to think it was all natural, and then when I was involved in competitive mogul skiing, I started to understand that you actually can make them with a snowcat, but really, <laughs> um, we're making those. That's the real answer to that question. That's a good one. And you got that frequently? I, we get that occasionally, yeah, the mobile question. I did get one interesting question uh, just recently this winter. I'm standing at the top of the Bonanza lift at the map. There's a large map up there, and it's a point of where guests swing by for questions. And it's a really nasty day. The wind is howling. The snow is blowing. Um, I've got maybe 20 guests scattered around asking how to get here, how to get there, and you're rapid fire answering questions. And this guest walks up with his skis over his shoulder and says, uh, how do I get to the St. Regis? And it, it made me stop because I thought, well, how did this guy get here? But he was actually, he didn't have any idea really where he was. And he thought that he could ski from Park City Mountain over to Deer Valley to the St. Regis Hotel. So I had to explain to the guy that really you're at the wrong resort. And uh, in order to get to the St. Regis, you're going to have to ski down to the base and take an Uber. <laughs> I actually had a similar story to that. I was 
skiing with a friend and we had gotten separated and I got a hold of her on phone and she was telling me where she was. And we had started at Deer Valley. We were skiing at Deer Valley. And all of a sudden she's telling me, well, I'm on this lift. It says, let's see, it says McConkie's. And I says, oh, you are not at the right resort any longer. <laughs> it happens. It happens, you know. When you take a break from Park City and you go and you ski about somewhere, do you have another favorite Utah ski resort you love to go to? Well, we are blessed with so many fantastic ski resorts in Utah. Um, I really do enjoy them all, but I, I guess my go-to second resort is Deer Valley. Um, it's a neighboring resort, and I do enjoy uh, the runs at Deer Valley immensely. And back at Park City Mountain, do you have a favorite run? You know, my favorite run at Park City is, I would have to say it's probably Assessment. Assessment is a lovely intermediate run underneath the Silverload lift. We groom it um, every day, and uh, it has a nice pitch, nice terrain, and it's... Uh, my ski day at Park City really isn't complete unless I take a lap on assessment. Now, that's a really good call, though. I have to say, when we skied last week, you checked the grooming report to make sure we could ski Silver Queen. <laughs> I did check that out. <laughs> and uh, we also uh, checked out Crescent, as you recall. Yes, we did. That was a, that was a fun time. How about a uh, favorite High West whiskey? Well, uh, I have always enjoyed the Rendezvous Rye, but uh, this Bure is uh, really nice. <laughs> it is, and remember, we have a whole bottle still sitting here. So. And then last question that I pose to all of my guests, groomers, glades, moguls, or powder? Oh, yeah, that's a tough question. Uh, we frequently groom some of our black runs at Park City, and my favorite is one of those nice, long black runs that's been groomed and then has 10 inches of new snow on it. Um, it doesn't get any better than that. It sure doesn't. Sandy Melville, thank you so much for joining us. Silver to snow. If you can't do it with Sandy, do it on your own. Go to the website skiutah.com and the blog article for last chair. We'll have detailed instructions to help guide you around the mountain. Thanks for joining us, Sandy, and sharing this history. Oh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to our mountain host, Sandy Melville, for the historic tour around Park City Mountain. Check out the Last Chair podcast page at SkiUtah.com for a link to a detailed map of the mountain so you can do your own ski tour this winter. And thanks to Steve Walton from High West for the wonderful Burai tasting. Park City is a remarkable community with a wide range of outdoor recreational opportunities. Since 1972, White Pine Touring has been serving locals and visitors alike. White Pine Touring is the local headquarters for cross-country skiing, snowshoeing, biking, rock climbing, and the burgeoning new sport of fat biking on Park City's snow-covered trails. Looking to buy or rent gear? White Pine Touring has you covered. It also operates the White Pine Nordic Center, Park City's only groomed trails open exclusively to cross-country skiers with 20 kilometers of maintained tracks. Visiting Park City and looking for a fun new adventure? Check out White Pine Touring for its rental gear or guided trips. To plan your trip, go to whitepinetouring.com or give the experts a call at 435-649-8710. That's 435-649-8710. Just a personal note, 
White pine can really enhance your Park City vacation. As winter starts to warm up a bit, it can be a glorious time to rent a fat bike for the day or take a guided snowshoe trip. The Ski Utah Last Chair podcast is brought to you by High West Distillery. Follow our whiskey adventure on all social media platforms at Drink High West. And remember, sip responsibly High West Whiskey, 46% alcohol by volume. High West Distillery in Park City, Utah. In our next episode of Last Chair, we'll take you up to Ogden, one of America's most fun urban ski towns. We'll be meeting up with Roosters Brewing Company founder Kim Butchart at the new Roosters B Street Tap Room. We'll talk about skiing at Snow Basin, Nordic Valley, and Powder Mountain while sampling a few of Roosters' amazing beers. To close out the episode, let's turn it over now to Pixie and the Party Grass Boys. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Tom Kelly for Last Chair, presented by High West. Have fun. It's a great day to ski. Until I can't ski.